You know, we live uh, in a culture of rampant idolatry. Uh, and as I say that, depending on your definition of idolatry, that might be, yeah, of course, or it might be, that's really confusing, or maybe you're not sure what I mean by that. It might be confusing if you think of idolatry just in a very narrow way, kind of like in the Old Testament, where people were bowing down and worshiping carved images and different things, and the, the stuff you read about in the Old Testament, if that's the way you think about idolatry, you might go, well, I don't really know anyone that does that today that bows down to certain images or those kind of things. But if you kind of expand and you get a bigger picture of what Scripture talks about when it talks about this idea of idolatry, I think it actually makes a whole lot of sense. It's actually much more nuanced. It's much deeper. It's more deceptive. It's at the heart level. It has to do with what we believe and what we put our hope and our trust in. And so if I were to define what the Bible talks about when it talks about idolatry, I would say it this way. It's it's worshiping a created thing, good things that God's given us, but a created thing no less, and taking that good thing and making it an ultimate thing in our life. Beginning to functionally even worship or make our whole lives center or be around those things. And you go, well, I don't know that I worship anything. Hopefully, I don't worship anything other than God if you're confessing to be a believer But it's very deceptive in our heart and how we can do that and the ways in which that happened. It actually can be very tricky because idolatry oftentimes are good things, really good things that God gives us, good gifts that he gives us in our life that then become ultimate things. And that's what's so deceptive about it because oftentimes they're really good things. And so when you start to think about this idea of idolatry, you can start to kind of ask some questions about what's going on in your own heart. You know, where do you find your confidence? Where do you find hope? Where do you find joy in your life? The ultimate of those things. And at different times, if you really stop and think about what you're, you're thinking about and what you're giving your time to and what you're focusing on, sometimes it can start to f- see the ends of that are not that I'm trusting in God, but I'm putting my functional trust in something else. For example, when we think about our hope, right? A confident assurance in what's to come. Right? My hope. What, what is my hope in that things will be better tomorrow? And this week, a lot of people are going to go and they're going to cast their votes. It's the midterm elections this week. And it's very easy to go, things will be good if so-and-so gets elected. And functionally, our hope can start to be in politicians or our government or things like that. And it's so deceptive. And if our person doesn't get elected, then all of a sudden we're so depressed and upset and it, we feel it. And so oftentimes it can be very deceptive, but our functional hope is actually maybe in a politician or a government. Or we start to think about what do we put our confidence in. Oftentimes we put our confidence in things that we're good at. Maybe our job or our vocation, the things that we've become very skilled in. And we don't even recognize. But we we puff out our chest and we tell people what you do and that's what you lead with because that's your identity, because you're putting your confidence in your abilities. And it becomes a functional idol in your life. Or maybe your joy. Your joy is tied so closely to things like your family. Which, by the way, your family is a good and wonderful gift from God. If God blesses you with children or grandchildren and you're doting over these beautiful little ones and you get so excited, for good reason. It's a wonderful gift. But it's so deceptive, the deceptiveness of our heart that then makes that our joy. And we actually start to If we're not careful, worship those things. Now, that may seem a little crazy. I don't worship my kids or my grandkids. But I want you to think about the definition of worship for just a second. The things that which we give great reverence to. 
that we give great adoration to. How easy it is to functionally worship even your children or things like that. This is where I get my joy and that's where these things are. And so it's very easy for us to slide into an idolatry in our heart. Now, if I were to look at our culture today and start to think about this idea of idolatry in our culture, what is the thing that we turn to? What is the thing that we put our hope in? And I think in our culture right now today, where we are in our country, that the functional idol of our, health, of our hearts is ourself. It's our feelings. It's what I think and the way that I feel things should go. We even speak that way if you stop and think about it. Be true to yourself. Follow your heart. Right? The things that we repeat and we say over and over, we use that kind of language. There's a new one today, and I've said this for a couple of years now. Live your truth. Right? Your truth. Doesn't matter if it's actually true, but if it's true to you, live that because that's what's most important. And if you think about it, in that language, what we're doing is we're giving an adoration and a reverence to the self above all else. It's our functional idol, that it's all about me and what I decide. The ultimate truth, the ultimate barometer of happiness is be true to yourself and follow your heart and you be you and live your truth and all those things that we say. Ultimate happiness is going to be found that way. That's the way our world speaks. But there's a problem with that. There's a problem. There's a reason why that cannot work. And sadly, we're missing it in a whole lot of ways in our culture. In fact, sadly, we're missing it even as believers in what we profess about who we are and how reliable our heart is. I said last week, we're just doing a three-week series, last week, this week, and then next week, kind of hitting on some great big theological ideas. And it came out of a study uh, Ligonier Ministry does every two years called the State of Theology, and they ask some basic questions, and they ask people to either say they agree or disagree with these statements. And last week we talked about the reliability of the Bible and how over 50% of people who claim to be Christians don't really, they really struggle with the reliability of God's word. And so we talked about that last week, but this week I want us to kind of shift gears, but it's a really important, and I'm going to read two statements to you. It goes to this kind of reliability of our heart, (laughs) making the self the idol of our life and why this doesn't work. And so I want to read these two statements to you and give you some statistics on it, and then we'll talk about this together. The first statement is this. Everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. Everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. 72% agree. The second statement, everyone is born innocent in God's eyes. 79% agree. Believe that people are mostly good, born innocent, that we can kind of make decisions for ourselves. In fact, this whole idea of following your heart and living your truth makes a lot of sense if you think that we're born innocent and we're mostly good. But the problem is that's not what the Bible says. In fact, what the Bible says is the exact opposite of that. And so let me explain. The Bible does tell us that we're made in God's image. Every single one of us. Every person you meet is an image bearer of the creator God of the universe. And as such, you bear the marks of the creator. And you have a moral compass, and that means you can understand some things about what is good and bad and all that goes with that. And that is true, and that's good. And we should remember that when we're talking to people, that every single person we meet is an image bearer of God. 
But what the Bible also tells us is that because of our sinfulness, that sin has entered the world and it has marred that image in each and every one of us. That we're all sinful. That we're all broken in a lot of ways. And what it tells us is that we're desperately sick and our heart is deceitful above all things. Actually, Jeremiah says that. We're going to look at that in just a second in this passage. And that's really difficult when you start to understand what the Bible says about the deceitfulness of our hearts. But then we live in a culture that tells us to listen to our heart. Tells us it's all about how we feel and what we think and follow that and you be you and live your truth and all those things. But then the Bible says, no, 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 (laughs) your heart's really deceitful. And be very careful about that. And so I want us to think about that truth together today. And so we're going to look at Jeremiah, Old Testament prophet. If you know anything about Jeremiah, he writes about 600 years before Jesus would come. And he writes in a time that's a very dark period in Israel's history. Israel's a divided kingdom. The northern kingdom has been taken out. They exist no more. They've been scattered. The southern kingdom is kind of holding on Judah. And that's where Jeremiah goes and speaks to the people. But it's right before they're actually destroyed by the Babylonians. And God's telling them to repent, to turn from their idolatry. If you actually read the beginning of this passage, the first four verses is saying that's the occasion. That they're all about their idolatry and putting trust in other things. Taking created things and elevating them to ultimate things and putting their hope in it. And so God speaks to Jeremiah and he says, go tell them this. Thus says the Lord. And he tells us some really important things here that we need to consider. And so this is the way I want us to look at this text. I want us to consider what God says is true about our ability to run our lives trusting ourselves. What does he say here about that? Secondly, if we reject what God says here, which if Ligonier's poll is right, about 70% of people in our country are rejecting what it says here. What are the ends of that? What comes out of that? If we ignore what God's telling us. And then lastly, what's the way out? If that's the case, we're rejecting what God says. How are we saved from this? What does God do to pull us out of that? And so let's just start with what God says about the ability for us to run our lives. And so if you look at Jeremiah chapter 17, start with me. Look at verses 7 and 8. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes. For its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. And then look at verses 12 and 13. A glorious throne set on high from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. And so a foundational truth that we need to start with. At the very beginning, I love the way this passage says it. Beautifully says in verse 12, which is true about each and every one of us and the way that we are created. A glorious throne set on high from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. That is, you were created and made to know and to love God above all else. God made you in his image to know and to love him and then to love others, but to be in that relationship where you find rest and hope and joy and confidence is in the sanctuary of the throne of God. That he created you for that. That that's where it starts. That that's the way we are made. In verses 7 and 8, he's kind of illustrating what that looks like. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. Because that's what you were made for. 
You're made to live close and with him and following him and trusting him in all things. And blessed is the man that does that. He's like a tree planted by the stream that's being fed, that's bearing fruit, that even when hard things come is, is secure because it's connected to the source that's always there. He says here in, in verse 13 that he's the fountain of living water. I love that phrase. If you've been with us as we've been walking through the gospel, Jesus uses that phrase and applies it to himself. Come to me and I will become in you a fountain of living water. And what he's saying is you were created to know and to love God and that's where it starts. And that's the foundational truth of scripture that God created us and made us for his image, in his image, for his pleasure to be in that relationship with him. But then there's a warning here. Cursed is the man who puts his trust in man and makes flesh his strength, it says in verse 5. And he starts to talk about all the ways in which we don't do that. And the reason that he's talking this way and he's telling them this is that's exactly what they're doing because that's what we're doing and it's what we do as sinful, broken people. And so if you go back to the very beginning of the story, God creates us to know him and to love him, to be in this relationship with him, to walk closely with him. Genesis 2 He says, you trust me in all things. But he gives the the first people, our first ancestors, as he sets them up, real choices with real consequences that we can have a real relationship with God. And he says, I love you and I've got all this for you. And I've got one rule here. Trust me on good and evil. It's really what God says. Trust me on this. He says, you can ignore me and decide that you can do this without me or you can trust me. And he says, but if you ignore me, and you will go against what I'm telling you, and you decide you can do it on your own, the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. It says that in Genesis 2, verse 17. Now that tree symbolizes that choice. Are you going to choose to put your trust in God, or are you going to put it in yourself? If you know the story, Genesis 3, Adam and Eve decide to eat from the tree. They decide they can do it. And as they do, sin enters the world. They Ignore God and the world that he created and sin enters. Right now, God said, as soon as you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. But you read the story, Adam and Eve, suddenly lots of things are out of sorts and there's problems, but they don't die on the day that they eat the fruit. Or do they? Because Ephesians 2 tells us that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. That spiritually speaking, in our rebellion, we're cut off from the relationship with God and spiritually we're now dead. Adam and Eve went from trusting God and walking with him and seeing all things beautifully and perfectly to going, oh no, we're naked. They went from having no shame to suddenly recognizing, oh, there's something wrong here. And they started to point fingers and they started to fight and they started to have all these problems that come flooding in. And the reason is, is because spiritually speaking, sin has entered the world and they're now spiritually dead. And suddenly what they were created for has been broken because of their rebellion. And what unfolds from that point on is how God is going to bring us back and he's going to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. He tells Adam and Eve that right at the beginning. But what you now have is that sin has marred all of creation. It's covered all things. I had this image this week. I kept thinking about that. Sin falls and comes in all things. Do you remember when 9-11 happened? And the images that were coming from that. Some of you are too young and you've seen it in 
retrospect now, but I remember when it happened and watching it on TV. And about six blocks around the Twin Towers of New York City, all those images of the soot coming down from the buildings burning and collapsing, and everything was covered in it. Right? The rescue workers, the people on the street, the street itself, everyone was covered. And I thought that's kind of an image of what happened as sin came into the world. It covered everything. And it distorted the way we think and the way that we operate and the way that we see. It cut, off, cut us off from this relationship that we were created for. And it distorted our view of everything. And so when you read here in Jeremiah chapter 17, in verse 9, it so powerfully tells us, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Sin enters the world and it spreads to all men and all of creation is now under futility. And it's built into everything. So much so that what it tells us here is it changes the way that we operate and see. So much so that we're now deceived. The heart is deceitful above all things. What does that mean? If you're deceived, it means you think you're right when you're wrong, right? You go along going, I'm doing it right. It's like, no, you're not. But you don't know it. That's what it means to be deceived. I was trying to think of a good image of what that's like, and it came to me this week. I don't know if you know this about me, but I am red-green colorblind. Pretty severe, actually. I took a test this week. (laughs) It's pretty worse than I thought it was. If you've ever taken one of those tests, it's like the little, the, the circles and it, it, it's uh, little dots of color. And then there's numbers in the middle of it. And I scrolled through 25 images. I saw numbers in about six of them. The rest of them, I'm like, it's just a bunch of dots. I'd show Joanna, is there a number in this? And she'd go, yes, there's eight. I'm like, what's she talking about? I couldn't see any of them. Or a lot of them anyway. I can't see those colors. And it's deceptive because if you ask me what's green, I would tell you, well, that's green and I can see it. But what I'm seeing is not what you're seeing if you're not colorblind. Actually, I have proof of this. I went once with Asher when he was about two years old to the to outlet mall to buy him some new shoes. And I got home proudly to tell Joanna, hey, I got the shoes that Asher needs. And she goes, oh, where are they? I said, they're on the counter. And she opened the box and she said, why did you buy him bright pink shoes? I said, what do you mean? Those are black and silver. It's like the Raiders. It's kind of cool. She's like, no, it's not. (laughs) These are pink. (laughs) It's like, well, Asher liked them. And she said, well, he's two. (laughs) Don't ask him. I learned a valuable lesson. Did you know that it tells you the colors of the shoes on the end of the box, if you look closely? (laughs) It did say pink on there. From then on, I would read and go, what color are these exactly? But I'm deceived right? In my mind, I'm deceived because I think what I'm seeing is that color. That's the same thing that happens in the sinfulness of our heart. We are deceived into believing that the world's all about me now, right? I mean, that's what the original sin was. God says, trust me. I made everything and I love you and I want your best. Trust me. And we go, I got this. And so we continue to operate in that deception, and so if we think about that in theological terms, what the, we often uh, theologians will say is this idea of what it's talking about there in verse 9 is what we call total depravity. That in our sinfulness, we cannot see or perceive things as they are now. We see things with this fog 
of sinfulness over us. We believe that we're the center of the world. We believe that we can make these decisions on ourselves. And we're so deceived that we think the decisions we're making are good and right. And they're not. Because we can't see it as it truly is. Now, when we talk about the total depravity, oftentimes there's misunderstanding on what that means. If it means that we're totally depraved, what it means is that spiritually speaking, we're spiritually dead. We can't see things in the way that God has designed them to be. In and of ourselves, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit breaking into our life, we're going to see things with ourselves at the center. And we can't see outside of that. Now, that doesn't mean that if someone's not a believer, that they never do anything good. Let me clarify that. You may know someone who's a staunch atheist that does all sorts of good things. They're kind and they're gracious and they, they volunteer their time and they do all sorts of good things. And you go, well, wait a second, they're a pretty good person. But what the Bible says is your heart's default, even in doing those things, is ignoring God, right? If sin is ignoring God in the world he created, if you go out and you do a bunch of good things, but you do it saying, I'm not doing this because of God, God doesn't exist. You're not actually doing good. You're, you're still rebelling against the ultimate truth of the creation. And so even though you're doing good things, you're doing them, shaking your fist that God doesn't exist. And so we do that in everything, and it gets infused in the way that we operate. Now, people can still do good because they are made in God's image, and they do have somewhat of a moral compass, but the reasons in which they're doing them are wrong. We're ignoring God and the world that he created. And so it's in everything. And so what the Bible teaches is that in our sinfulness that we are desperately sick, that we're deceived, that we do things in the wrong way and for the wrong reasons and we don't even know it. And so when we miss this truth, and as a culture we say, follow your heart and you can do it and you be you and you live your truth and you make that, we're pointing people to run headlong into their sin. And there's dire consequences that come from that. And that's what it tells us here. Look at verses 5 and 6. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He's like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. If you trust in your flesh and you make your sin nature your strength and the fallen aspect of it, you continue to operate and your default sinlessness or sinfulness, you're like a shrub that's pointed, uh, planted in the desert. And I want you just to think about the image that he uses there. What's a shrub that's in the middle of the desert? Its root systems go down in the ground, right? You know why roots are there? They hold you in place so you don't get blown away. But it's to draw nutrients out of the ground. And the image here is that when you put your trust in yourself, you're trying to connect to a parched ground that can't feed you. It can never do what it hope, you hope it's going to do. And so when you elevate the created over the creator and you put your hope in yourself, in your thinking, in created things, you're trying to find ultimate meaning and purpose in a created finite thing and it can never do it. Never ever. No matter how much you try. It's kind of like being connected to something that's woefully inadequate. I don't know if you've ever been around an electric car, right? They're becoming more uh, everywhere now. But they're, they're superchargers. And then did you know, I don't know if you know this, but you can charge any car in a regular outlet. 
right? You go to a supercharger and you can charge the whole car from zero to like 90% in 20 minutes. And it's this rush of power that fills it up. Or you can plug it into a regular plug and it gets like two miles an hour. It'll take you like three days to charge your car. Not real practical, kind of unhelpful really. But in it, when you start to function in your flesh, it's like being a trickle charge plugged into the regular plug. You're getting just a, a smidgen of what you're created for. Right? You make idols out of good things and maybe there's some blessings that come from those good things. But you're trying to make them the ultimate thing and they can never do it. You're like the shrub that's in the desert that never has enough. And so when we make our lives centered on things, the created things rather than the source, it will never, ever be enough. It leads to all sorts of errors. In fact, here it says, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength. What does that mean? Cursed is the man who worships the creation over the creator. Cursed is the man who puts his trust in his own heart rather than what God says. What does that mean? Cursed, when we read about curses and blessings all through the Old Testament, it's in there a lot. The curses that it's talking about are, are consequences. God has created the, and ordered the world in a certain way. He is the center. He is the thing that will bring you everything that you're looking for. And when you go against the way that he has ordered and created the world, the absolute reality of it, there's consequences that come with that. And so when he says, cursed is the one, it's you're going to come against things that you're going against the way God has created you, and it's going to lead to all sorts of problems. And so what ends up happening is you're chasing after ultimate meaning and purpose by things that can never do what you hope they'll do. It's like a dog chasing its tail. You ever seen a dog chase its tail? I have four dogs in my house, and they do this from time to time. Not that often now. They're all getting old, so they're kind of lazy now. But they used to do this. Have you ever seen a dog chase its tail? Have you ever seen a dog catch it? They bite down. They go, oh! Right? It's because they were chasing this thing that was going to give them, oh, this is so exciting. And then it's like, that's not what I was looking for at all. It's the same thing when you try to get ultimate meaning and purpose from a created thing rather than the creator. Instead of going to the source, the fount of living waters that will fill you up, you're seeking to drink from a cup that has a hole in the bottom. Right? Jeremiah uses that, that image. Broken cisterns trying to get a drink, and it doesn't work. And when you seek to make your life filled up with things that will be ultimately futile, that's so why it says, cursed is the man who trusts in his flesh. It will never, ever do it. But yet, because of the deceitfulness of our heart, we try so often to do that. Ultimate meaning and purpose will come from sexual relationships. And so people move from one to the other to the other to the other, and I hope this fills me up, and it doesn't. And it can't. And it never will. Or we do the same thing with our job. If I just get enough promotions and enough money and enough things, then I'll be able to buy happiness and everything will be great. And it can't do it. And it's this futility that we're seeking after, trying to be filled up with something that can never, ever fill us up. And so when we start to operate that way, cursed is the man who puts his trust in his flesh. You're living in the futility of your sin. 
But it also brings us to this place where we seek refuge and rest by what we do. Just think about that for just a second. When it's all about you and you're the center of all things and you're putting your trust in your heart and your feelings and what you can do and what you can buy and how good you are and all those things, listen to what it says. You're like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Or verse 8, the opposite, when you put your trust in the Lord. It's like a tree that's planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream. And it does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves remain green. And it's not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Think about the, the uh, comparison there. When you make your life centered around you and what you do and your heart and your feeling and all those things, you'll never find a place of rest. Never. You'll never get to a place where you go, I've done enough. I've arrived. I've accomplished everything that I ever wanted to accomplish and look at me and how great I am. You know why? Because you're a sinful, broken person and you can't do it no matter how much you try. But yet we get sucked into that. In fact, that's why there's so many world religions. This is an oversimplification, I admit. But every world religion outside of Christianity is built around this idea that you do A plus B plus C, and if you do enough, then you'll arrive. Right? You'll, you'll reach nirvana. You'll ascend to a higher plane. God will accept you. You will have done enough. But what it does is it puts the focus still on you. And if that's the case, you will never get to a place where you can rest. How would you ever know? Right? You're still seeking, and if I do this, and if I do that, and maybe if I do this, and then things will be okay. And it's exhausting. But you're still the center of all things. And be careful. The deceitfulness of your heart can even make your Christianity look that way. And if you thought about that, you go, well, blessed is the man who puts his trust in the Lord. I put my trust in the Lord. And the Lord tells me to go to church and read my Bible and give money and volunteer. And I do all those things and I'm doing the best that I can so that God would accept me. And if you do it that way, you're still putting yourself at the center. And you're still wrestling with how do I do enough? And is that what it looks like? And you'll exhaust yourself even thinking that you're doing it following God. But if you really stop and think about all those things when it's doing so that I would be accepted, I'm still at the center. It's still about me. It's still what I do. And it's exhausting. It's a roller coaster. Some days it'll make you really, really down and depressed because you're like, man, I blew it today. I didn't do near enough. And some days it'll make you really arrogant. I'm doing really great today. I had my quiet time and I, and I volunteered and I went to church and I did all these things. Look at me. But I'm still at the center. In fact, Galatians 5 tells you that. If you're looking up at other people or you're looking down at other people, you're still walking in your flesh. That's what it says. You're still walking in your flesh when that's the case. The one who walks by the Spirit doesn't do that. Why? How are we ever rescued from this? What is the way out? He tells you right here. It's in verse 7. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust 
is the Lord. Not just his trust is in the Lord, but his trust is the Lord. That you've put your faith completely and totally in God and what he does for you and not what you do. We were talking about this this morning in our new members class. That not only does God save us by grace, but he saves us by giving us the ability to believe. Do you believe that? You know how amazing that is? That you are saved by grace through faith, and that is not your own doing, but a gift of God. Even your ability to believe. You know why? Because your heart is desperately sick. And it's deceitful. And it tells you lies. It tells you that you can do enough to be saved and stand before a holy, righteous God. No, you can't. But thankfully, the holy, righteous God that you will never be able to stand before in your own doing loves you so much that he's done for you what you can't do for yourself. Thank God that is true. Blessed is the man whose trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man whose trust is the Lord. That we worship a God who came to do for us what we could never ever do for ourselves and we can rest. It's the only place that we can rest. When we lay down our doing and say, God, I can't do it. My heart is desperately sick. I know I am easily deceived. I need you to stand over me. I need you to tell me when I feel like this is true. And I just know it because I feel it. And your word says, no, that's not true. It's what saving faith looks like. Transferring your trust from yourself and how you feel and how you think in the moment and what God's word says. Oftentimes, what happens in our sinfulness, in our deceitfulness, we start to do things that are opposite of what God's Word says. You know what that sounds like? You say, you can't understand. You don't know what I feel. You don't know what this is like. And the sad part is when somebody says that, it's the deceitfulness of their heart. And they're turning from things that God clearly tells them. And oftentimes, believers around us see it. And they go, yeah, but that's what the Bible says. But they're in their emotions and their feelings and they go, no, that can't be it. That's why God saves us into a community of faith. And he tells us, you let my word stand over you and you speak the truth to one another and you encourage each other and you walk together because you can't see it. At different times, we get blinded by our own sinfulness. Now, the good news is the Holy Spirit comes in and he begins to show us those things and he gives us a sensitivity. You're a new creation. You can begin to see those things. But we still need other people speaking the truth into our life. And as we do, God meets us there. And so I'm going to end here with verses 14 and 15. Look at what he says. Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me and I shall be saved, for you are my praise. Behold, they say to me, where is the word of the Lord? Let it come. I love that he says that. <laughs> where is the word of the Lord? Let it come. Lord, stand over us with your truth. 
Would we transfer our trust from ourselves to you? Would we not put our trust in our deceitful heart, but trust in you and what you've told us? Would we not trust in our doing, but in what Jesus has done? Would we lay that down and let that stand over us, that we would see him in all things? Because God is good and he's done for us what we could never do for ourselves. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the glorious good news that you pursue us, that you show us, that you teach us, that you've spoken to us through your word and ultimately through your son and that we can trust your word over the deceitfulness of our hearts. I pray that you'd help us to see that afresh today. I pray that as we just sang this morning, Lord, we need you. We need you to stand over all things. We need you to be our righteousness. We pray that we would see that afresh today. I pray that we would leave here being overwhelmed with your goodness, with a renewed sense of wanting to follow you in all things and in all ways. And we pray all of it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.